there was a man who was sailing for Europe on one of those great big transatlantic ocean liners. And when he went on board, he found that another passenger was going to share the very same cabin with him. And so after going to see his accommodations, he went up to the purser's desk and he inquired if he could keep his gold watch and other valuables throughout the journey across the ocean. Well, he explained that ordinarily he never took advantage of that privilege, but he had been to his cabin and he had met the other man that was going to occupy the same space with him. And judging from his appearance, he was afraid that this other man might not be a very trustworthy person. Well, the purser accepted the man's valuables and he remarked, it's fine, sir, I'll be happy to take care of your valuables for you. For you see, the other man has also been up here <laughs> and said the exact same thing. Have you ever judged someone that you didn't know or judged someone that you did know before having all the facts? Well, you're human, I'm human, so the chances are good we've all done that before. We've misjudged someone or someone has misjudged you. You see, when we judge this way, though, we set ourselves up to make some really big mistakes. That was certainly the case with the prophet Samuel. Last week, we learned that King Saul had turned out to be an utter disaster. I mean, on the surface, sure, he looked like he was going to be the perfect first king of Israel. He was tall. He was rugged. He was someone who could bring together the 12 tribes and unite them into a powerful monarchy. But Saul's heart was far from God, and he didn't have a strong character. And so God told Samuel it was time to look for a new king. Chapter 16 begins with Samuel mourning, grieving over this news. And part of his grief was because he loved Saul and his family. But I'll bet some of it too was because he was afraid of what was going to happen to this new nation with change coming so quickly after their very first king. Like most of us, Samuel had a hard time of letting go of the past I mean, he had had a hard time to begin with leaving the era of the judges in order to set up the monarchy. And now he was having trouble letting go of Israel's first monarch. He didn't want to let go of Saul. I have a hard time letting go sometimes. Do you? I mean, we get used to our way of doing things, don't we? Our ways of thinking. And we develop this emotional attachment to these things that we hold so dear, sometimes even long after they've ceased to be useful to us, and even still we refuse to let them go. We hold on to these kinds of things even when God says it's time to let go. God had to prod Samuel a little bit. God told Samuel that he had to let Saul go, and then God gave Samuel, his next mission. He says, Samuel, grab your anointing oil, get yourself down to Bethlehem, because it was there in Bethlehem that God was going to show Samuel 
the new king that he had chosen. And so Samuel goes. Take note in 1 Samuel 16, verse 4. When the leaders, when the elders of Bethlehem hear and see that Samuel is coming, they become really afraid. They start shaking in their shoes, trembling, the Bible says. Samuel's presence precedes him. Legendary Samuel, fierce and famous Samuel. He never comes to town just to drop in for a visit. There's always something wrong when Samuel comes to town. So who had sinned in Bethlehem? What was going on? Why was Samuel coming this day? God knew that Samuel was kind of afraid too. I mean, Saul isn't dead. The king is still living, and yet I'm supposed to go and anoint a new king? What if Saul hears of it and kills me? But God had given Samuel a cover story. He told him to take a heifer along with him to Bethlehem and to tell the townspeople that he had come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And it was going to be a big affair, and everyone in town was invited. God told Samuel to make sure and invite Jesse to the celebration too. And so Samuel does everything that the Lord had commanded. He invited Jesse, and he invited all of Jesse's sons to come to the celebration. And so one by one, Samuel begins to meet Jesse's sons, <laughs> and he is impressed. He's impressed by them. He took his first look at the eldest son, Eliab, and he says to himself, of course, this must be the one, God, that you want me to anoint as the next king of Israel. I think Eliab must have reminded um, Samuel of Saul. He was tall. He was good-looking, strong, athletic, a natural leader. But God said, no, he's not the one. And so Jesse called his second son Abinadab. And God said, no, he's not the one either. And so Jesse brought his third son, Shammah, to Samuel, and he's not the one either. And so four more sons are brought before, are paraded before Samuel, one at a time. And God says, nope, he's not the one either. And so Samuel must be thinking to himself, what is going on here, God? What are you doing? What are you looking for? What am I missing? Any one of these young men that I've already seen would have made a great next king. And then God said to Samuel, do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Like Samuel so often we're impressed by the things we can see, the external things, aren't we? I mean, we live in a world where physical beauty absolutely outranks spiritual depth. We live in a world where success in business is defined by the bottom line and where charisma is prized over character. I mean, we vote for leaders more by the images that their managers create for us on television than by their character or where they stand on the issues. This focus on the outward appearance, studies show, actually harms 
our relationships. Psychologists at Arizona State University have studied what has come to be called the contrast effect for the last 20 years. And their conclusion is that we judge both our own and other people's attractiveness based on the social situation we're in. If a person of average looks enters a room of extremely good-looking people, they will be perceived as less attractive than they actually are. But if that same person enters a room of less attractive people, they will be perceived as more attractive than they actually are. And these researchers have found that this contrast effect actually influences the way people see themselves. It causes us to devalue ourselves. And it causes us and leaves us alone and yearning for superficial beauty instead of real love with real people. I mean, we're bombarded by media images of beautiful people, and so we develop this expectation of attractiveness that is, it's unrealistic. It's just never going to happen. It's not even real. Michael Levine, a Hollywood publicist, says this. He says, my exposure to extreme beauty is ruining my capacity to love the ordinarily beautiful women who live in the real world women who are more likely to meet my needs for deep connection and a partnership of the soul. Listen to what two other people have already made about this discovery. The first is actress Halle Berry. You know her. She was selected several years ago by People magazine as one of the 50 most beautiful women. And here is what she has discovered. She says, beauty, let me tell you something. Being thought of as a beautiful woman, woman has spared me nothing in my life. It hasn't spared heartache. It hasn't spared trouble. Love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless, and it is always transitory. She says, I can't believe what people do to themselves to make themselves look beautiful, the excess, and then they end up distorted. And worse they still have that hole in their soul that led them to change themselves to begin with. Or listen to what actor Brad Pitt has to say. He made these remarks in Rolling Stone magazine. He said, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, the version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? He goes on to say, if you ask me, I say toss all of this stuff. We've got to find something else. Because all I know is that at this point in time, we're heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. And I don't want that. I'm the guy who's got everything, he says. But once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. That's all we're ever left with, isn't it? Ourself and who we are. 
My friends, the church's task has never been to help you be a well-adjusted, well-to-do, successful person. But the church helps us learn to deal with disappointment, with illness and aging. It helps us get back on our feet when bad luck knocks us down. To help us find all the joy and meaning in all of life. And to open our eyes to see the dignity and the goodness of human existence as well as its dark side. Samuel turns to Jesse and he says, is this it? Are these all of your sons? And Jesse replies, oh, I forgot. <laughs> no, there's one more. He's out in, the sheep, out in the fields, though, just tending the sheep. He's so insignificant, this last son, that he isn't even invited to the party. Jesse doesn't even call him by name in this text. He just calls him the youngest. In Hebrew, it's literally translated the runt. <laughs> I mean, if you had eight sons, maybe you would be able to forget one of them. I don't know. <laughs> David is about 14 or 15 years old, and he's brought to Samuel. And the Lord says to Samuel, this is the one. Anoint him. Well, David is like the anti-Saul, the opposite of Saul. To Samuel and to Jesse and to the older brothers and to all the people that are there witnessing this event, David is probably the least likely person to be chosen to lead Israel. But verse 13 says, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. That's a theme that runs throughout the Bible, isn't it? Have you been noticing as we've been reading through the story? I mean, the world is impressed by big names and splashy headlines. We want things done with star quality. Advertisers will pay movie stars and, and famous athletes millions of dollars to sell their products. We want top-of-the-line, star-quality, name-brand. And what we're learning from Scripture is that throughout the Bible, God chooses the most ordinary men and women to do the most extraordinary things. An old couple way beyond childbearing years is chosen to give birth and to create a nation, Abraham and Sarah. Moses, born to slave parents, working in slave labor, put in a basket on the Nile just to spare his life from death, who grows up and murders a man, is still called by God to lead God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. Think about Jesus, our Lord, himself and the people he chose to choose to be his disciples to build the church after he leaves he chooses James and John nicknamed the sons of trouble always getting into trouble once they tried to call down fire on a town that wouldn't do what they wanted them to do or he called Matthew a tax collector a sinner everyone hated tax collectors including Matthew he chose foul-mouthed rough-hewn Peter who could barely make it as a fisherman. He chose Judas, who betrayed him. 
and a lowly shepherd boy named David. God chose to be king. You see the trend here, right? God has always made choices that have surprised the world, always. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He says, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no one can boast in the presence of God. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that God is the central character in human history, not us. That God is revealed as a God of grace and power who has a particular place in his heart for the powerless. Grace is all over the pages of the Bible. It is not David's actions that make him a king. It's not his good looks. It's not his intelligence. It's not his charisma. God says, I took you from the pastures, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I will make for you a great nation. It's all God's doing. God shatters all of our assumptions. God does the unheard of, the impossible, through ordinary people like you and me. And so what does that mean? Well, if you're an ordinary person, then you're a prime candidate to be used by God. I mean, think about it. If he can use Abraham and Sarah, if he can use Moses, if he can use a shepherd boy, if he can use a young teenage girl and a carpenter, then he can and he will use us. Mark Laberton, a pastor out in California, tells of a season in his life that was really difficult for him financially. He was driving this dilapidated old car. It had actually been given to him, donated to the church by one of its members. It had tons of problems. It had one of those ceiling liners that had come attached from the roof that kind of drips down on your head. I had one of those ones too, actually. <laughs> It had terrible shock absorbers, and so every time it bounced, that, you know, ceiling was kind of going on the head. And um, the car began to speak to Mark. One day it said, failure. And he thought, why can't I get my life together? I'm getting older every year. I've got a family. This car that I'm driving is humiliating. And so he felt like a failure. And one day he says that he was driving his nieces to the airport. It was a hot day, one of those Southern California days, and the air conditioning in this car had long stopped working. So all four car windows were rolled down with the hot air blowing in, and these little vinyl flakes from the old sun-scorched dashboard were being flecked off and blown in the faces of everyone in the car. And so that day, still with no money to buy a new car, he went out and leased a new car. And it was wonderful, he said. There were no flakes flying around, no droopy ceiling liner anymore, no broken shock absorbers. Mark was thrilled with his car that day. That is until it began to talk to him too. 
And its message was also just one word, fraud. Mark was no more put together, no more successful with this new car than he had been with the old clunker. It just looked better, and it made him look better. But Mark felt like a fake. Sometimes I think our lives swing between voices calling us fraud or failure. The key is not listening to either one of those. I'm not as bad as my enemies might say I am, but I'm not as good as I've led some people to think I am either. And it's right there in the truth somewhere in between that we hear the voice of God and he still says to us, I want you and I will use you. We are chosen by God for his purposes against all probabilities and despite the opinions of our family and our friends, even ourselves. Chapter 16 ends with David being introduced into the royal court of Saul. And verse 14 says, The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And Saul begins this slow downward spiral into darkness. But he discovers that when young David plays his music on the lyre, it cheers him up. That the evil spirit that had been harassing Saul leaves in the presence of this young man playing soothing music. And so chapter 17 begins with a battle that's brewing. Saul's army, you see, is in this standoff with their perpetual enemy, the Philistines. Now, everyone knows this next story. Even if you weren't raised in the church, you know it. But there's this reason to why this story follows in in the succession in the Bible. Chapter 16 gives us the principle that what matters is really found on the inside. And then chapter 17 proves that that's true without a shadow of a doubt. By now, a few years have elapsed. David is about 18 years old, and one day he's tending his father's sheep, and then his father calls him and sends him to go check on his older brothers who are serving in Saul's army. They're on the front lines. And so David goes, and he arrives, and when he gets there, Goliath is just dominating the scene. He is about 10 feet tall, and he carries this huge spear that weighs 25 pounds as though it's a little baton that he could twirl in his fingers. He's completely intimidating the army of Israel. Goliath, his size, his brutality, his cruelty dominated the battlefield. The soldiers treat Goliath as important and David as insignificant. The men look at Goliath in fear and terror, and they look at David and they practically laugh. Why? Because everyone on the battlefield was making a judgment that was based on outward appearances. Everyone that is except David. For he enters the battlefield with a God-infused life. It didn't matter to him that, David, that Goliath seemed to have the advantage. 
It didn't matter to him that Goliath's armor probably weighed more than David did at all. David couldn't believe that everyone in the Israeli army was cowering before this infidel giant. I mean, weren't these Israelites enlisted in the army of God? Why did they put up with this giant? Saul comes to David, and he tells David to try his own armor on. And David does put Saul's armor on, but he can hardly walk in it. It practically makes him fall over. He says, I cannot go in these. I'm not used to them. You know, it's always a mistake, isn't it, to try and be someone that we're not. Always better to be authentically who we are. I've learned that before. I still have to learn it sometimes, that it's best to be exactly who God created us to be. David seems to have this wisdom somehow at such a young age. And so he takes off the armor and he walks into the valley wearing nothing. Well, he did have some clothes on, but he took nothing with him except for the spiritual gifts and the training that God had given him to fight bears and lions while protecting his family's sheep. And of course, he took his sling. He stopped only for a moment as he went to face Goliath to pick up five smooth stones from the stream and put them into his little shepherd's leather pouch. And so Goliath sees this little pipsqueak David coming out to meet him, and he's absolutely insulted. And he starts to mock David, calling him names. What do you think I am, David? A dog that you would come to me with just a stick in your hand? And he starts belching out these Philistine curses across the valley with the two armies on either side. And he tells David, today I'm going to kill you, you little pipsqueak. And David replies with utter calmness, with trust, and with faith. Because he knows that this battle has been won before it even began. And so he goes out and he announces with absolute certainty to the giant, this very day, the Lord of Israel will deliver, me, deliver you into my hands. And then suddenly David is running, but he's not running away from the giant. He's running toward the giant and everybody looks in shock and all. They can't believe it. David's brother sees their little brother going and they're embarrassed that he's going to embarrass them in front of the whole army like this. And King Saul is practically beside himself thinking this young man in his royal court is doing nothing more than committing suicide that day. And Goliath stands there in shock. No one has run toward him before. He's never seen that. And this moment is so without precedent, and it occurs so quickly that no one really knows quite what is happening except David. And he swings once, and he swings twice and a third time, and he lets that rock fly. And it hits Goliath right in the forehead, and he slumps to the ground, and he's dead. No one expected that outcome. Goliath sure didn't expect that outcome. No one that is except David. Not because David trusted in himself, but because he trusted in God. David knew that outward appearance didn't matter at all. It was what was on the inside that mattered. 
And I imagine that everyone else that was gathered on either side of that battlefield that day came to understand that too. Well, you probably know the rest of the story. Saul becomes increasingly jealous of David over time, and he chases him in the wilderness. He tries unsuccessfully to kill him even. And it all comes to an end during another battle with the Philistines. Saul is surrounded by enemy troops, and he has been badly wounded, and he decides to take his own life by falling on his sword rather than be captured alive. And so his reign as Israel's first king ends, and it ends pretty much a disaster. And then the tribe of Judah, and eventually all the tribes, come and ask David to be their king. And 15 years after Samuel had first anointed David as a young boy, he is crowned king at 30 years of age. And he unites all the tribes of Israel into one nation, and his 40-year reign is absolutely seen as the pinnacle of Israel's spiritual life as a nation. And 3,000 years later today, the symbol of Israel, the symbol of Judaism, is still the star of David. My friends, the legacy that you and I are going to leave behind has got to be more than our charm or our wit or our physical prowess. Because someday every one of us will die and every one of those external things will go to the grave with us. External things fade away and they decay, but the heart, what's on the inside, that lives forever. And the way to find happiness for us is to embed that truth into our hearts first and then to pour it into the hearts of our children by helping them to see and to use their God-given gifts and talents that they have been given and to help them find their place in the world as ordinary people doing extraordinary things under God's eyes. We need to live that. We need to model that. For the Lord sees not as mortals see, they look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the story of David, how you took this little shepherd boy from the fields and he became Israel's greatest king, not because of who he was, but because of who you are. God, thank you for the way that you use us as seemingly insignificant as we sometimes see ourselves, in your hands, God, you can do great things in and through us. So we offer ourselves to you today, all that we are. Take us, use us to bring glory to your name. For we pray in the name and for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen.